When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we ask a stark question. Are hopes for peace deal realistic? Plus, we'll look at the global chess game linking Russia's war in Ukraine, the Iran nuclear deal, and the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 21, and today I'm joined by Dom Nichols, our defence and security editor, Verity Bowman, one of our foreign reporters, And later, we'll hear more from Tony Diver, our Whitehall correspondent, Olivia Utley, assistant comment editor, and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team. Verity, if I can start with you, what are the latest updates from overnight and earlier today? Well, Russians have really escalated the bombardment of cities overnight, and that includes Kharkiv and Maripol. It's made the humanitarian crisis even worse and left a lot of cities destroyed. So in Kyiv... Um, Missiles and artillery hit high-rise apartments, setting them on fire, both in the capital and in the suburbs. But in Mariupol, 28,000 civilians have now escaped through a humanitarian corridor. But in Kharkiv, 500 residents have been killed so far. And then in Zaporizhia, where people have been arriving from Mariupol on trains, a rocket hit the train station. But there's been no reports of casualties as of yet. Thanks, Verity. And um, Dom, what about you? Can you give us a sense of what's happened in the last 24 hours? Yeah, hi, Sophie. Hi, everybody. Hope you can hear me OK. I'm on the road today, so a bit of background noise. I apologise for that. Um, so the, the other thing that's happened today is that there's been some movement in Mariupol. They've managed to get 20,000 um, civilians out of the city, but that still leaves hundreds of thousands of uh, people still in there with, with no um, water, electricity, and the situation is very dire. Um, the other thing to note is that, that NATO defence ministers are meeting today in Brussels um, with the uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. So we're expecting a statement from them later this afternoon, saying a possible, maybe a possible um, ramping up of, of military support to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and the other thing is the bit about peace talks, but I think we're going to come on to that a little bit later. So I'll just uh, I'll just hold fire there. Thanks, Dom. I know going back to Mariupol that Verity, you were looking in today at the situation that's happened in a hospital there. Can you tell us a bit more about what you've been looking at? Yeah, so the situation there is actually pretty dire. We've got reports of premature babies being left behind in hospitals. And in another hospital, 500 people have actually been held hostage by Russian forces. Around 400 of these people were rounded up off the streets and 100 of these people are doctors and medical personnel. So the regional governor said it is impossible to leave the hospital and the Russians are shooting hard. Um, 
it's seriously damaged and at the moment medical professionals are treating people in the basement of the hospital. Goodness. Um, And in terms of the situation for people moving from Mariupol, there's also been reports that the Russian forces have targeted a train station in the southern city of Zaporizhia. Now, apparently people were going from Mariupol to Zaporizhia. Is that something that um, you've kind of looked into? Yeah, so that has happened earlier today. As I said before, um, it was where a lot of refugees were going and passing through. But we haven't had any reports of casualties, so it does seem to be okay for now. Thank you, Verity, again. Um, And now to you, Dom. We're hearing reports that despite this kind of um, consistent shelling, that actually um, the Russians' lack of troops is going to kind of make a big impact on their ability to continue this battle and that actually they're reaching out around the world for extra soldiers. What what do you make of this? Well, it seems that they are leaning on their allies in Syria and Armenia, as well as um, sort of mercenary or paramilitary forces like the Wagner Group and Chechens and what have you. They're drawing forces from their eastern military district, you know, thousands of miles away, and there's even reports that they're uh, moving their Pacific fleet around, although questions are, are being raised about whether or not the Pacific fleet could actually get into the Black Sea. Under the Montreux Convention, Turkey could close the Bosphorus Straits. So what all this leans on, what it suggests is that the 170,000 troops that uh, Russia amassed on the borders of Ukraine prior to the invasion have all been committed, and they've been very, very surprised at the number of casualties they've taken. Estimates vary. The the latest Ukrainian estimate says that 12,500 Russians have been killed. We should uh, treat these uh, statistics with caution. But, I mean, it is clear there's been a huge number, and it's come as a real shock to Moscow. So they're having to backfill with troops from elsewhere. And it's thought that these troops will be used to um, sort of hold positions they've already got or protect rear areas rather than go into um, uh, combat in the main objectives because you wouldn't um, you'd expect the Russian army to, 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 to not sort of put those objectives in the hands of other people. Um, so we're expecting to see them sort of north of Kiev and in the east of the country, uh, maybe down the south around Mariupol, that kind of area. Uh, but it is, it is very interesting to know that Russia is now having to sort of outsource some of its own, some of its own war. Totally. And what you've been also looking at the ways in which Russia will kind of is using weaponry to protect itself in these situations. Um, And you've been you've written a piece that's in the paper this morning all about their use of decoy darts. Now, would you mind explaining what they are and how Russians are, are using them as their new secret weapon, as you put it? Yeah, so we saw these some images of these darts about a foot long, and they seem to have electronics inside, and, and um, they're clearly designed for flight. They've got fins on, metal fins, so they're clearly designed for stability and flight. We think they are coming from Iskander missiles. Iskander's are short-range ballistic missiles that are causing a huge amount of damage and causing a lot of civilian casualties. And we think that these darts are doing two things. Firstly, burning probably magnesium, but, but some, something extremely hot to draw away any heat-seeking missiles that the Ukrainians might fire um, in defence. And secondly, the electronics inside suggest that they're, they're putting out some kind of electromagnetic pattern to confuse radar-seeking missiles. So we think that what's happening is the Iskander missiles are being launched, and then as they get towards their target, are releasing these a uh, small number of these darts to draw away any ground fire that might be sent up against them so that the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, ground forces are not able to uh, defend their areas and these missiles are able to get through. And certainly from what we've seen on the ground in terms of casualties and destruction in the last few days, that does seem to be the case. So that's where the, um, the sort of assessment is on, uh, on, these, uh, on these, these darts that started popping up or sorry, images started cropping up over the last few days. 
Thank you. And I guess my last question in this section where we're discussing kind of the latest updates would be where are we where are we looking out for now in terms of places that are at risk? I heard someone this morning say that actually they don't think Kiev is at such a risk as we thought it was because possibly Russians didn't have the troops and the firepower to physically take the centre of the city. Is that a view that you share or are you less maybe optimistic? Do you want to come in on that, Dom? Um, I certainly share the view that they haven't got the troops to uh, encircle and uh, control Kiev, but uh, actually that's that's not necessarily a cause for much celebration because all they'll do is stay outside and and continue the shelling as we've seen elsewhere in the country. So it's uh, it's not it's not a necessarily a good thing. But they simply haven't got the troop numbers, haven't got the troop density to be able to to assault, let alone hold um, a city of that size. Um, so I think over the next few days we're just going to see more shelling as these. Um, negotiations go on, or some negotiations of negotiations. These these messages that we're getting about possible um, peace deals and and the um, the signals that are being sent back and forth. This will all be against a backdrop of continued shelling as the Russians seek to go into any future peace negotiations with a strong as strong a hand as possible. And as you just mentioned, so we're we're going to tilt now to talk more about the peace negotiations which are ongoing. On the front page of our paper this morning was the story that um, Zelensky has stated that Ukraine will will never get to join NATO. Now, Verity, what is the significance of this statement from Zelensky this morning? Well, actually, it's pretty significant. And I think to explain that, we need to give a bit of context. It was actually a key demand of Putin's in the build-up of the invasion that um, Kyiv is not allowed to join NATO. And since Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, Ukraine has made a big deal of joining NATO. It's a real priority. But the alliance haven't let them in yet. Putin really hates the idea of having NATO territory on the border of Russia and sees this as a bit of an existential threat. He argues that Moscow has been betrayed by the West as they broke commitments made at the end of the Cold War that NATO would not move eastward. NATO really denies these. Um, So, yeah, he claimed that Moscow's military movements were in a response to Ukraine's growing ties to the alliance. And it was one of his main demands to prevent further action in Ukraine, but he could never secure it. So Zelensky always said he would not take the option off the table. So the fact that he is offering one of Putin's um, original demands is quite a big development. But whether Putin will take it as a win or stop the conflict is an entirely different question. Thanks, Verity. And I wondered if anyone else wanted to come in on the significance of this statement. And of, I know uh, at PMQs earlier, we heard Ian Duncan Smith talking about the fact that actually maybe it shouldn't totally be off the table. Um, I'm interested to hear if anyone else has thoughts on this. Dom? Well, all, all I'd say is that um, there was a piece John Simpson wrote in the, on the BBC website today saying that uh, Zelensky's pull, pulled a blinder here, really, really good statecraft. Because um, what he's done is he's, um, by saying that uh, Ukraine's not going to join NATO and responding also to the statements recently about that you know, NATO are not going to put a no-fly zone in, Zelensky's basically saying, OK, fine, well, if that's, if, that's, if that's the kind of club you are, then I don't want to be part of it. So he's, he's able to say, reluctantly, I'm now no longer interested in joining your gang, which is, is one way of stepping closer to any peace position so it's been as Verity says it's been a, a long-standing demand of Putin's you know not just clearly it's not going to roll over and say right okay well we won't, we won't do that then but but couching it in these terms just give him gives him a little bit of diplomatic wiggle room to say well okay that's not the club I thought we were going to join so let, let's let's just call a, call a halt to it for a few years and have a look in uh, in a little while so that was pretty good statecraft by Zelensky of course uh, Putin then said 
Kiev was was not seriously committed to peace, which you'd expect. But interestingly, Kremlin um, uh, spokesman and, and actually comments from uh, Sergei Lavrov, the, the uh, foreign minister, they're now talking about a, a demilitarized Ukraine along the lines of Austria and Sweden. So but with their own army, but demilitarized. And so what, what does that actually mean? But it just shows that there's some uh, wiggle room being introduced to this debate at the moment, which can only be a positive thing. What did you think, Mutaz? Yeah, it's it's a sign that these these there might be something in these negotiations. It's not just talk from either the Kremlin or or Kiev. There there might be something. Basically, Putin probably recognizes that this special military operation, as he calls it, is is not going particularly well for him, and he's trying to find a, a way out. And it is smart that Zelensky has held this card for so long, and he's now. Uh, putting it on the table. Let's be let's be real. <clears throat> Ukraine was not going to join NATO, not anytime soon. Uh, NATO in 2010 said this that Ukraine would not be joining for the foreseeable future. A country with uh, border conflicts and border com- disputes cannot join NATO for as long. So for as long as as the, the, there was uh, trouble in the Donbas, Ukraine would not have been able to join NATO anyway. So to hold this card and to sort of put it on the table now is very smart, and it sort of puts the ball in, in Putin's court. I was talking to Michael Mifkin, uh, former Foreign Secretary, two days ago, who thinks now that there might be a deal around sort of fine, you know, NATO can rule out Ukrainian membership, but uh, there would have to be sort of security guarantees with a neutral arbitrator, you know, the UN or something, and, and, and there might be a fudge um, uh, and, and and he thinks that Putin didn't go into Ukraine over NATO. Putin went into Ukraine because he doesn't believe Ukraine should exist. That has failed. And so this could be a way of presenting him and the Kremlin with a way out. So it's, it's something to watch out for. It's very, very important and positive. And just um, to you, Tony, I know today we had comments from Ian Duncan Smith at PMQs where he suggested that Ukraine should go through a kind of the application process for NATO that Finland was going through. What's your take on kind of the political attitudes towards NATO membership and the, the Zelensky's discussion of NATO? Yes, well, Dominic Raab was quite circumspect about that, actually, when he was asked in Prime Minister's questions this afternoon. Um, Ian Duncan Smith put forward a pretty forceful case, which is to say, well, it may well be the case, as we heard overnight from Zelensky, that Ukraine is no longer looking to join NATO, but IDS wants the government to make it clear that if they were to say they wanted to join, that that option would be open to them. In other words, that, you know, in principle, it's something that Ukraine should be allowed to do and something they shouldn't be blocked from because of the conflict which is going on at the moment. And so that's why he drew that comparison to Finland. Finland, reportedly, is also considering a move to join NATO following the start of this conflict in Ukraine. Finland obviously shares a pretty long border with Russia, a long history of um, tension and conflict between those two countries, uh, and both Finland maintains a pretty sizable military uh, for that reason. So, yes, I mean, Ian Duncan Smith wants a commitment from the West that the door isn't, that they're not shutting the door on Ukraine, and if Ukraine wants to choose not to do it, then that's up to them. Um, the response from Dominic Raab today was was just to say, well, that it looks like Ukraine is not heading in that direction at the moment because of what Zelensky said last night, um, and, he, and he didn't make any firm commitment to it. But perhaps that's a sensible thing for him to be doing as a, as a UK government minister, because perhaps now isn't the time for NATO countries to be talking up the prospect of 
Ukraine joining, given that it's one of the key flashpoints in this conflict, main points discussed, as Verity said, in, in any peace deal which is to be reached over the next few weeks. Thanks, Tony. Um, so, Dom, I wanted to come back to you. So Liz Truss said this morning that the ceasefire and withdrawal of Russian troops would need to be the precursor to any success in these peace talks, which at the moment are kind of drawing into a war of words. Um, but there have been reports that the ceasefire could simply allow Russians to regroup and then set on another kind of awful and um, dire mission. Do you share the same worries? What's your take on this? Yeah, I heard her say that, and I think this was another example of um, of Liz Truss being a, a bit too fulsome in her comments when, when some slightly more guarded language would have been helpful. So saying that a ceasefire and complete withdrawal of Russian troops before any peace negotiations um, is a, pre- uh, a prerequisite, I, I mean, that's simply not going to happen. So you're just setting yourself up for failure there. As you said, and we discussed before on these pods, a ceasefire is loaded with political um, objectives from, from all sides and very rarely do all those objectives coalesce around let's get the civilians out and to safety. So we've got to be very careful about what, what a ceasefire actually means with people um, using it to, to rearm, regroup, take a breather, etc, etc. So, so we've got to be very cautious about them. But um, I think, it, I think it's, a, it's a bit hopeful to say there should be a ceasefire and, and all Russians should, should leave Ukrainian soil before we, before we do anything. That's, um, that's simply not going to happen. And, and she should have, should have left herself a little bit more room to, uh, to discuss there. Thanks, Dom. Um, Dom, Verity, Mutaz, Olivia, I wonder if you had any other comments on the peace deal before we move on to discuss this kind of complex global chess game that's going on in relation to Ukraine and our oil and energy supplies. Um, but before we do go on to that, did you have any thoughts about maybe what a compromise could look like at this stage um, amid this kind of war of words that's going on? The only thing I would add is I think that there may well be a role here for the CSTO, that's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is the sort of Russia would like to think of it as, a, as equivalent of NATO. It's not. It's five, five nations, but it's a, a collective security organization with Russia being kind of you know, 98% of it. Um, but it, it does leave the room for, let's suggest, some CSTO troops in the Donbass, um, maybe Armenians, um, Kazakhstan, Belarus, maybe, probably not Belarus, but, but certainly maybe Ar- Ar- Armenians, Tajiks, um, who might be able to police some sort of deal. So instead of NATO um, or the UN having these troops, which might be, might be the fudge that Mutaz was, was talking about. So we all know that these are, these are going to be, if not Rus- Russian troops in in other uniforms, um, certainly under the under pretty firm direction from Moscow, but that might be just one of these geopolitical fudges that gets everyone on to the next step of a peace deal. So watch out for moves from the CSTO. Thanks, Dom. Now, whilst it's only indirectly related to the Ukraine crisis, it would go amiss not to mention today the news that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe has been allowed to leave Iran. Tony, do you want to comment on just how significant this is? and also the implications that it could have on our relationship with Iran. Yeah, well, this is a huge piece of news. I mean, this is a story that we've been following since 2016, when Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was detained in Iran. Uh, She was accused by the regime in Iran of spying, and she was put behind bars. Uh, And since then, the British government's been doing everything it can to try and get her released. She was actually imprisoned at the time that Boris Johnson was the foreign secretary. So this is a, a story which has kind of followed him through his political career, and he's been dealing with it as prime minister as well. One of the key things that we know about this story is that 
her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, has been lobbying the British government on this side to try and get them to do more to release her. He's done two hunger strikes, the most recent of which I think was was almost two weeks long, where he sat outside the Foreign Office just off Whitehall and and didn't eat and camped out sort of in, in an attempt to persuade the government to do more to release her. And Tulip Sadiq, a Labour MP who's been trying to secure her release, has tweeted a photo of her on a plane on the way back to the UK, which is fantastic news. At the same time, we've also got a statement from the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who says that the UK has settled that outstanding £400 million debt with Iran. So that's the debt for some tanks that were bought by the by the Shah in the 1970s that were never delivered. So um, that was always the sticking point in this negotiation. And... Uh, the Foreign Secretary says that money's been paid. Quite interesting exactly what it could be used for, though, um, because obviously the UK does still have sanctions in place on Iran, as does much of the international community. So uh, naturally, there are concerns about handing them a large amount of money like that and what exactly it might be spent on. It seems that the negotiation that's gone on behind the scenes here between officials on both sides is that the funds that have been sent by the UK, that £400 million, is restricted to being used for humanitarian purposes only, which I think is a, a quite interesting way of getting around these two things. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary story, given that there were points at which in the last five years that we thought it wasn't going to happen and that she was going to spend the rest of her life in an Iranian jail. And, and this morning, it, it, fantastic news for her and for her husband and for everyone else who's been following this. Yeah, I just wanted to say we should remember that this was hostage diplomacy from Iran, which was disgusting. Um, that debt had nothing to do with Nazanin, and they used the woman's life to get that debt back. It was hostage diplomacy. It's a shame we had to pay it, but we did uh, to get her back, and it's so good to see her on a plane. But it was hostage diplomacy, uh, which is probably the most disgusting way you can conduct international affairs. Would someone like to explain, maybe for our international listeners who haven't followed this story so closely, how this deal with Iran and what we're hearing reportedly, how it's linked to the war in Ukraine? Because it's not immediately obvious. I'll give it a go, but have patience with me because it really is 3D chess. Um, Basically, the link between Iran and Russia, the, the, the main link that we're talking about now is the deal, the nuclear deal with Iran. Donald Trump pulled out of this nuclear deal with Iran. The deal was that uh, sanctions would be lifted on Iran if Iran made promises to not expand its nuclear capabilities. Donald Trump said, we don't believe that that Iran will will listen to these, to this, um, it won't, won't abide by its promise. So he pulled out of the deal. Now, Biden and the UK and Germany, to a lesser extent, are desperate to get this deal going again because there is a huge gap in energy demands which Iran could fill left by Russia, left by the sanctions that, that, that the UK, US and the rest of the European Union have had to impose on Russia. So basically, there's this huge hole in our energy. Iran would be the perfect people to fill it. But we've had to suspend this deal with Iran, which would lift the sanctions and mean that they could fill that fill, fill that gap because they haven't made promises, that because, because Trump decided that, that Iran wouldn't keep to its promises not to expand its nuclear capability. So it's all very complicated. And Nick Allen has a very good piece in The Telegraph, which explains it in, in a lot more detail. But, but that, is, that is, in short, the link. We need Iran's energy now because we've put these sanctions on Russia. Um, but Iran... 
Iran, which puts Iran in a very, very powerful position. The UK and US have to have to find a way to, to be friends with Iran. Um, and one of those ways, well, it looks like we've, we've reached a deal here. So it looks like we're on, we're on better footing uh, with Iran after this release of Nazanin. But also whether we're going to accept their, their promises that they're not expanding their nuclear capabilities. I hope that sort of makes sense. I think you did a pretty good job, Olivia, much better than I could have. This deal with Iran, we've been discussing the Iran nuclear deal. We've also got Boris Johnson in Saudi Arabia, um, once again, kind of looking for energy outlets. Would anyone like to come in on exactly the task that's cut out for Boris Johnson there and also the tricky path that he's walking in a nation um, associated with atrocities? What did you think, Mutaz? Yeah, just two things on Iran. Um, The first is that we did actually, we did owe a legitimate debt. Our own courts said that. that. That was a legitimate debt. Iran purchased military equipment, the Shah did. We didn't send that military equipment and we didn't refund them the money. So we've reached an agreement on that. It was legitimate debt. And on the Iran deal, I think Liv did it perfectly. But it's important to note that the UK has always supported the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal. When Trump pulled out, we were against it. I think we tried to sort of keep it alive with the Europeans. And it looks like we might be close to a deal where America returns to that now. That's the context. Relations with Iran have stalled in, since Trump pulled out, but they they have been on an upward glide since about 2014. And there's one country now that risks topping the whole agreement, and that's Russia. So it's a very complex geopolitical game. It's really, it's a mess. Boris Johnson is in Saudi Arabia, I think, trying to encourage Mohammed bin Salman to uh, increase oil output because we have now said that we're fa- we're phasing out Russian oil by the end of the year, which I think makes up something like five percent of our energy, and and we do need the Saudis to pump out more oil. That's not necessarily in Saudi Arabia's interest because the more oil you pump, the cheaper the price of oil becomes, and so Saudi Arabia makes less revenue. So it will take some convincing uh, from Boris Johnson. But he has had, for some years now, ever since he was foreign secretary, a close relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the the key power really in Saudi Arabia. They text constantly, apparently. And the hope is that on behalf of not just the UK, but much of Europe, he can convince Saudi Arabia to increase oil output. and, And you you pointed to sort of the, the human rights concerns. They are there. Saudi Arabia recently executed 81 people, I think. But people, not necessarily the Conservative Party, but those sympathetic to Boris Johnson's trip would say Saudi Arabia is not a geostrategic adversary in the way that Russia is. Uh, and so they would say that Britain needs to yes, criticise Saudi Arabia in a friendly way and encourage Saudi Arabia to be better. And they point to sort of MBS's social reforms as an example of Saudi Arabia becoming better and a more open society. But Saudi Arabia and Russia are not equivalent in that Russia is a geostrategic adversary. And over to you, Tony. I think there's, there's something else going on here, which is probably worth reflecting, which is that in simple terms, the main problem facing the government at the moment is that energy prices are too high and the supply of fossil fuels is too limited. And so what Boris Johnson and his ministers are trying to do in both of these cases, both in Iran and in Saudi Arabia, is to get the Gulf states who have access to all of this oil 
to increase their supply, to try and bring the price down, to try and protect energy security. There's slightly two issues here. One of them is that the energy costs a lot. And the second is, where do you get it from? Because you don't want to get it from someone that you're currently at war with or, or worried about going to war with. So the thinking is that addressing the Iranian and the Saudi problems might might sort that out. And so what we want is for the Iran deal to be back on the table. So the sanctions come off and the oil flows from there. And we also want to cozy up the Saudis. The main tension that Boris Johnson faces, though, is that Iran and Saudi Arabia do not get on. And historically, they've never got on. And there's a huge geopolitical issue going on in the region between those two countries. And at the moment, the main thing that's stopping Saudi Arabia from accepting the, the demands of the West to increase those oil exports and to cozy up with Boris Johnson and, and to President Biden is that it doesn't feel that the West is taking its own security concerns that it has about Iran seriously. And you know, the ongoing war in Yemen, there are Houthi rebels in Yemen who are Iranian-backed, which are firing on Saudi targets. And so the Saudi Arabian government says, well, hang on a minute, you're, you're cozying up to us, hoping to get our oil, but at the same time, you're doing the same thing to Iran, uh, and you're, you're boosting Iran's position on the international stage by getting this nuclear deal back on the table and, and getting rid of the sanctions. So Boris Johnson is in this very difficult position here where he's trying to uh, he's trying to be the friend of two enemies. And that, I think, is probably... That's, that's the main issue he faces when he goes there this week. Now, of course, there will be domestic pressure on the UK not to become too close with the Saudis. And that, as Mutaz says, that's because of the human rights abuses. And Angela Rayner in Prime Minister's Questions brought that up today. She said quite clearly that the UK is going cap in hand from one dictator to another on a begging mission to get oil. And, I mean... It's hard to see how that characterization is incorrect, but you know, ultimately this is about how much how much oil can we get to the UK, how quickly and how much does it cost? Um, and, and the real difficulty here is that the Saudis may well turn around and say, well, you know what, looks to us like you're now friends with Iran again, so we're not going to do it. Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, really well explained and very good point. And the other thing, the other problem, obviously, that that uh, we have, which shouldn't go unmentioned, is that Donald Trump did have a point when he pulled out of, of the of the deal. Um, there's an interesting Telegraph leader yesterday, which is worth a read, just, just pointing out that Iran has, has never ob- obliged by its international commitments. It, it does seem to be quite naive. Uh, that's what Donald Trump thought. And, and that you know, it's hard to say, say that it's not naive to be to be sort of walking into this deal with Iran again. Um, will they really abide by their promises not to expand their nuclear capability? And as we've seen from from what's happening in Russia, when when a dictator gets gets nuclear weapons, then they've got all the power. And and if we let you know Tehran become become Moscow, then we'd be in in serious trouble. So this all depends on on Iran telling the truth about its nuclear capabilities. And can we really trust them to be doing that? And if not, then what are we letting ourselves in for? Thanks, Olivia. You can actually read Nick Allen's piece on the global chess game linking the Russian-Ukraine war and this Iran nuclear deal. So do go and have a read of that after because it is a fascinating piece with some really brilliant graphics that turn this complex um, issue into something relatively simple. I guess one of my final questions today would be, we've been discussing a lot the political implications for this on the world stage, but Another part of our weekly Wednesday political updates has been looking at how this plays out for Boris Johnson as a leader and maybe even Liz Truss as a foreign secretary. I wondered if you had any thoughts about how this is playing into Boris's campaign as a war leader, I guess. 
Or Boris Johnson is much safer now than he was a few weeks ago. Uh, in fact, he's sort of been revived in a way. He's got this renewed energy and renewed support from his party. Scottish Conservatives have, or their leader at least, Douglas Ross, has withdrawn his letter of no confidence. This is sort of a new lease of life for the Prime Minister and his popularity is rising. So the immediate sort of threat to him has not just vanished, it's, you know, uh, unless there was a new scandal, it won't return. I imagine even if he receives a penalty for going to those parties. But as we've just been discussing, the PM now faces crisis everywhere. If we want to talk about COVID again, COVID cases are rising. Uh, There is trouble in the Middle East, and we may see Israel take matters into its own hands when it comes to Iran. And there's a war in Eastern Europe. So he's he's a busy, busy man. As we're kind of coming towards the end of our space, I'd love to go to you all for final thoughts, if possible. Um, Should we start with you, Verity? Um, Yes, of course. So I think the main takeaways from Ukraine right now are that we are going to see more shelling, we are going to see more people dying, and we are going to see more people um, running away and going over the border to Poland and other countries. So right now, I think the focus should be on the humanitarian crisis and the human cost of all of this going forward. Thanks, Verity. Why don't we go to you, Tony? Do you have any final thoughts? Sure, yeah. I would say from the political point of view, I think there are reasons to be cautiously optimistic about this. I agree with Verity that we're very much still in the throes of war in Ukraine, but I think some of those some of those comments overnight and the suggestion that there might be some deal to be struck uh, is is good. And, you know, as Dom said last week, the majority of wars end in diplomacy. They end in a deal being reached. They don't end in one side being vanquished by the other. And I think it's important to remember that. So if we're one step closer to that, then that's good news. Uh, And in the meantime, all the stuff we're seeing about global energy security seems to be moving in in the right direction as well. So I I agree with Verity. There's no doubt that this will continue to be a desperate and violent conflict. But it does feel like there's a possibility that we may have turned a corner. Thanks, Tony. What about you, um, Mutaz? Yeah, I I agree with what Tony and Verity have just said. This was supposed to be a rapid intervention by Vladimir Putin. He had poor information, which is what you get with autocrats. And he thought he could... um, succeed very quickly and we may actually see a rapid retreat now if any deal is struck but there is a there's a sad irony which is that the closer we get to peace in ukraine the more pressure there will be on civilians and big cities like kiev because uh, the kremlin will want to put itself in a position where it has maximum leverage and so you know the more the kremlin wants a deal the more it will attack in the short term so it, it won't get much better at least for the next few days or weeks Um, that's just the sad reality thanks and olivia to you for the final word well everyone sort of covered what i would say about the situation itself but i think what also is interesting and what we should be looking out for this week is how these negotiations go with boris in uh, saudi arabia because britain is going to have to plug its energy hole as our europe the rest of europe and the us um the energy hole that's been left by russia quickly And it's now in the hands of uh, both Iran and Saudi Arabia, which aren't particularly people you want to have as your close allies. So how Boris is going to sort of square that circle between those two enemies and and plug Britain's uh, energy hole will be very interesting. And we should watch out, see how that goes, because it'll have ramifications in the in the months ahead. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. 
You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest, on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Alice Hearing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.